And uh, we have arrived at Daniel chapter 5. And this morning, uh, Luke and Nicole Aronson will be reading our scripture for us this morning. Daniel chapter 5. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O oh, king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed of his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. 
He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds your in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Pere, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thanks, uh, Luke and Nicole. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, every so often we run across a phrase in Scripture that's still in use today, <clears throat> and we're reminded, ah, that's where that comes from. Your days are numbered. The handwriting's on the wall. Both of those phrases are still in use today, and now we know where they come from. The story of Daniel and Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, and I'll probably say that word different ways uh, all day today, so please don't be too critical of me. Both of those phrases are still in use, but do we really have any idea what they mean? In modern-day parlance, they've sort of come to express um, the certain hand of fate. For instance, if a pitcher has three or four bad outings in a row, we might say that the handwriting is on the wall for this guy. And by that, we mean that he's destined to be traded. There's nothing that's going to change that. His days with the team are numbered. His end is near. In the biblical account, however, it's not the fates that write on the wall. It's, it's God. It's God who is actively involved in every aspect of our lives. It's God who holds not only our days, but every moment in his hand, their beginning, their end, every day, every moment, God holds in his hand. And the handwriting on the wall in this story tells us that God is about to put Belshazzar and his kingdom to an abrupt end. I want to just review the story a bit with you again so that we're all sort of on the same page for what's happening in 
Daniel chapter 5. At the end of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was actually still the guy in charge. Nebuchadnezzar was still king. And he had just learned some very important lessons from God about pride and humility. When the story resumes in chapter 5, we have a totally different king. But we have the very same issue of pride. The account has jumped ahead historically to King Belshazzar's reign or Belshazzar's reign. And we're told that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was less his actual father and more likely simply his predecessor. Nevertheless, Belshazzar seems to have inherited his father's main personality trait, pride. When we meet him, he's hosting a huge party for the, no- for the nobility. But rather than drink from his wife's slippers, he decides to pass around the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar took from God's temple, those holy vessels. They drink from them, they party with them, and at the same time they hold a little hymn sing to the idols of Babylon. It's about then that this dismembered hand begins writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. The words are Aramaic, which makes it difficult to understand why actually no one could read them. But they couldn't. And so just as in the other stories of Daniel that we're familiar with, Daniel is sort of called in to solve the mystery. And he does. He interprets the handwriting for the king, and with severe abruptness, his interpretation immediately comes true. Belshazzar is put to death, and his kingdom is taken over by the Medes and the Persians. So that should give us a pretty good handle on the story itself. But then we have to ask the question, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for Israel? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for exiles who are living as captives in a foreign land? Does it mean anything for us? Well, as you go through this account, three themes, I think, quickly emerge. One theme is judgment. Okay, the judgment of our God. The text is clearly about God's judgment and the handwriting that's really on the wall for all of us. But there's more. The text also speaks, I think, of the nature of sin. And finally, I think it also speaks about revelation, how God reveals himself to us. And so hopefully you'll pick up on those, those themes as we go through the message today, sin and revelation and judgment one of my uh, former seminary professors, Sidney Gradonis, um, asks in his commentary on Daniel how Israel would have first heard this particular text. And he says that um, keeping in mind in particular the abrupt judgment that fell on Belshazzar, okay? And his answer for how Israel would have heard this story had to do with, with comfort, He says that the author's goal is is to comfort the fearful Israelites who are living in exile with the message that their sovereign God, their sovereign God can bring down even the mightiest of rulers and the mightiest of kingdoms on the earth. 
And so the message really is, is take comfort. Take comfort in God's sovereignty and the fact that He is the great King over all the earth. Now, I, I wouldn't argue with that, particularly because it's never a good thing to argue with your professors. That's one thing I learned in seminary. <clears throat> At the same time, I think there's, there's more here. And let me try and um, show you why. For one, I think we have to sort of struggle with the question of God's mercy. I mean, why does he show mercy to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, but not so much to Belshazzar in chapter 5? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had just as significant an issue with, with pride and arrogance as did Belshazzar. I mean, remember the story, right? Daniel confronted Nebuchadnezzar with his pride, and if you remember, when he was first confronted, he didn't repent either. He went a full year before God actually turned him into a prime grade-A grass-fed herd animal. And even then, he lived that way for seven years. Seven years before God actually brought him to that point where he acknowledged that the most high king over all the earth was God and that God was higher than him. Even in that Humili even in God's humiliating Nebuchadnezzar, however, there was, there was mercy there. There was mercy in the way God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. Why? I think we have to struggle with that a bit. Why mercy to him and not Belshazzar? Second, I think another thing that we have to ask is, there appears to be a difference in Daniel himself between these two chapters. Now, admittedly, Daniel is, is much older in this account. We think he's probably in his 80s by now. Um, but in Daniel chapter 4, we read that Daniel's response to God's condemnation of Nebuchadnezzar was actually one of compassion. There was a sadness about Daniel to bring that message that, that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be turned into an animal. We don't find that same, kind of, that same kind of sadness here in Daniel chapter 5. Actually, Daniel seems much more businesslike in bringing his message, much more short and to the point. It's all about the facts here. I think we simply have to ask why that, why that might be. So try and keep those two things in mind too as we look at these themes of, of sin and revelation and, and judgment. Now, we don't have to look too far, I don't think, to find the theme of revelation in this text, right? After all, what we have here is God writing on a wall, writing His Word. Right? God's written word is right here before us. And the big question is, throughout the text, these words come up again and again. Who can make it known? Who can interpret it? Who can reveal what it's saying to us? And what we see here is that revelation is actually more than information, isn't it? Revelation is more than information. And this 
cuts against the grain of our culture today. We seem to believe today that, that all of our problems can really be solved with just a little more information, just a little more data. If you give people the facts, it'll obviously change their behavior. And so that's what we do. We sort of build this system around educating people, and then we fund that system, and, and we expect great results. We have this idea, right, that if you show people videos of, of what a car crash does to a person if they don't buckle their seatbelts, that that is obviously going to change their behaviors. And it doesn't. Not for everyone. Information doesn't do everything. In this case, in Daniel 5, we have the information. The words here are fairly obvious. They're all, they're all words for money, simply Aramaic words for money. Mene is mina, which was an amount of money. Tekel or shekel is another amount of money. And parson simply means half. So what we have here is mina, mina, shekel, and a half. So the words themselves are, are fairly clear. But the meaning is significantly more. And, and think of it this way. In this case, the words on the wall, they're sort of like a dream, right? A king has a dream of a mighty tree that reaches up to the sky. And it doesn't seem all that hard to interpret. Well, that must be Nebuchadnezzar. But then Daniel has to come in, the prophet who's filled with the Spirit of God, and Daniel has to interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here we have very much the same thing. We have words written on a wall that are fairly obvious to us, but they're not enough. They require Daniel, who's filled with the Spirit of God, to actually interpret those words for us. Mina, mina, shekel and a half, that's a far ways off from your days are numbered, you've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given away. There's a long way between those two things, right? You need the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God's holy prophet, to get from one of those things to the other. And friends, it's the same deal with this Bible, right? God's revelation to us. The words in here are simply dead words until the Holy Spirit blows upon them, right? Until the Holy Spirit fills these words with the person of Jesus Christ. Until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and opens our ears so that we can actually hear the revelation that is in front of us. And that's why some people can hear the name Jesus and they think Savior. They think Lord. They think the one who, who purchased me from my plight from my destination to be judged forever. He saved me from all of that, and He is the one that I will give anything for. I will follow Him with my entire life. When you say Jesus, some people think of all of those things and more. When you say Jesus to other people, it's just another swear word. The revelation of God the words need the Holy Spirit to blow upon them, to blow into them. The words in our text need Daniel. 
to complete the message, to clarify it for us. Now, that's really only one side of Revelation because there's more to Revelation. We know that. Before Daniel even addresses the writing on the wall, what he tells Belshazzar or Belshazzar is that he has been tone deaf to the Word of God his entire life. This isn't just a, a momentary lapse. Daniel basically repeats for Belshazzar the whole story from Daniel chapter 4 of God humbling Nebuchadnezzar, right? And then he comes down with this phrase in verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. Even though you knew all of this. Do you hear that? Belshazzar knew this story. He'd heard it before. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar being humbled. He heard of Nebuchadnezzar being turned into a beast of the field until he acknowledged that God was the most high God. He knew it all. He heard it all. It had been revealed to him. But he ignored it. He didn't listen. He closed himself off to what God was saying. Friends, Daniel chapter 5, and this part of it, it's kind of a forerunner to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Right? Remember those words there. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What Paul says there and what Daniel is saying here is that the revelation is there. God has revealed Himself. God does make Himself known, not just to Belshazzar, but to His entire creation. God has spoken and the revelation is adequate. It is enough. It's enough to hold us accountable for obeying it. So why doesn't it get through? What's the problem? And the answer is it has to do with our ears, with the equipment God's given us to receive His revelation. Have you ever gone through this uh, experience where you're having a little trouble hearing, and so you go to the doctor to have your ears checked, and she says, well, looks to me like they just need a little cleaning. And then she gets out this water pick type, uh, type tool and she begins squirting water into your ears and out comes the most disgusting stuff you have ever seen in your entire life. And friends, your whole humanity is put on display before the world in that very moment. That's the other side of revelation. Our ears are clogged. And we've done it to ourselves. They're clogged by persistent sin. We hear the Word of God, but we ignore it. Not just once. We ignore it again. And the next day we ignore it, the next day we ignore it, the next day we ignore it. 
And pretty soon we become actually incapable of hearing what God is saying to us. Let me try and explain that. You've heard that, that sin is like trespassing, right? You're out deer hunting and you come up to a fence and there's a sign, no trespassing, don't go here. Well, sin is when you come up against that sign that God has placed somewhere and you go ahead and climb over the fence anyway. But now, now think of it this way. You come to that fence and you climb over that fence not just once, not just twice, but you do it repeatedly over and over and over again to the point that you don't even see that fence anymore. You just cross into that land as if it's yours, into that foreign land, and you dwell there. See, sin is not just crossing a line, but sin actually leaves us in that far country, that country in which the light is very, very dim. And we don't have it in ourselves to see anymore, to distinguish between the things that are right and the things that are wrong. And so God actually has to shine a light for us to see again. God actually has to open our eyes. We can't do it on our own. Sin can also be described as, as corruption. We become corrupt. We become polluted. We become broken. We become something we weren't meant to be. Uh, you've probably heard of total depravity around here, this idea that sin smudges every part of our being. Well, another side of that is, is called total inability. Total inability. It's this idea that, that when we sin and sin and sin, we actually become unable to see what's right, to love what's right, and to do what's right. Total inability. And, and friends, this is, I believe, this describes Belshazzar. He had enough revelation to turn and repent of his pride, but his receptors just weren't working the way they were designed to be. They were all clogged up. His ears were incapable of hearing God's word to him. And, and what specific word was that? What were they clogged with? Well, I think at least one of the sins of Belshazzar was the sin of blasphemy. I mean, the text makes a very big deal out of the fact that Belshazzar went and fetched these goblets that had been in Yahweh's temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out, and, and he parties with these goblets. He toasts to his own God, gods with these goblets. He blasphemes. What is blasphemy and what makes such a big deal of it? Well, blasphemy is actually taking the holy things of God, the holy vessels of God, and putting them to common use. And in so doing, what Belshazzar was saying is that really Yahweh is just a common God. There's nothing special about him. He's just a run-of-the-mill deity. He's just another God from another nation. 
Dale Davis, I think, helps us grasp the idea here. He says, if you know, you get to work tomorrow and outside of your office there's a large box stationed there and in that box is your briefcase and uh, your pictures and all the little knickknacks from your office and any books that may have been in there. Um, all of your stuff, if you find it outside of your office, you get the idea it's not just the stuff that's out, right? It's you that's out. And that's blasphemy. It's not just treating God's stuff as ordinary, it's treating God as ordinary. Friends, I don't, I don't think we respect what this kind of thing is all about because how often do you think and do you see in your own life and in the lives of our children and family members and friends, we see ourselves treating the stuff of God as if it's nothing special whatsoever and we do it over and over and over again until we can't even recognize what's good and what's right anymore. We do this kind of thing with the law of God, right? The holy commands of God, and we turn them into what? We turn them into suggestions of God, common, ordinary proposals. We place ourselves above them. We become critics of them. I think I will obey this here, not over here. And when we become critics of the things of God, we place ourselves above Him also and we become critics of God Himself. What we need at that time is not just more words. In order for that revelation to break through, we need God's Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to make God great again, to glorify Him, to open our ears and our eyes to see His glory, how great that God really is. We can't generate that on our own, just like we can't generate worship on our own. We need the Spirit of God. And friends, we should be praying for the Spirit of God, for ourselves, for our families, that the Spirit of God opens our ears and our eyes and helps us see how great a God we really serve. So now let's ask again, how would Israel have heard this story? And I think we have this sort of, you know, vacation Bible school answer to that question. Well, you know, Belshazzar was a, was a bad man. He was a bad king. He was full of pride. That prevented him from hearing the word of God, and therefore his reign took on his own character rather than God's character. He partied with the rich and powerful while he abused the poor and the lowly, and, and so God put an end to his kingship. God put him to death. He was weighed and found wanting. And the moral of the story is that God will not allow these horrible, proud kings to rule over his people forever. And so Israel could rest assured that they would not remain in captivity forever. 
And, and friends, I think that's often what conclusion we come to when we ask this question, how do God's people live in exile? I think one of the ways we live in exile is it's awfully easy to point our fingers at our captors and say, man, they are full of all sorts of problems, and isn't it good news that one day God is going to take them down? But now, let's just factor in those couple of other things that we said. First, God shows mercy to Nebuchadnezzar, not so much to Belshazzar. And Daniel's sort of business-like approach to the whole matter. What difference do those things make, if any? Well, let's just consider that for a moment. Imagine, friends, that you are Daniel. And you are called to bring a message of, of swift doom to Belshazzar of Babylon. To Belshazzar, who has literally bet his life on the fact that God would be long-suffering, that God would be gracious, that God would be as patient with him as he had been with Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? That's the message you have to bring. It's over for you. Would that message, you think, have rung any bells? Is there anything familiar about that story to you in any way? Would it have been familiar to Daniel? What do you think Daniel would have heard in that message? Do we know of anyone else, let's say, who presumed upon God's mercy, who just thought, God will be merciful forever? Do we know anyone who put God's patience to the test? Do we know anyone who blasphemed God? And do we know anyone who experienced the swift discipline of God? We do, don't we? We can't help but imagine that in the back of Daniel's mind were his own people. Israel. God's covenant people. God called them his wife. Called them his child. He had a covenant relationship with them. And yet how often didn't they break that relationship? How often didn't they adulter themselves with other gods? How often didn't their kings commit the very same injustices that the kings of Babylon committed against their peoples? And how many times did God call them back? How many times did He call them to repent? How many times did He reveal Himself to them? His love, His law, all of it. How many times did God plead with them to change their ways, to repent? How many times did God say, if you don't change your ways, one day I will put an end to you? Remember the call to the prophet Isaiah? Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 6 when God commissions Isaiah. He says this, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull 
and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, this is Isaiah, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Was there another kingdom that God brought to a swift end and divided among the nations? It was the people of Judea. The very people who were captive in Babylon, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And do you know what sin it was that God accused his people of? It was the sin of blasphemy. You can read about it in Ezekiel 36. I won't read it right now, but basically what he says is my people, because of the very fact that you are living in exile, by virtue of that fact alone, you are blaspheming my name before every people of this world. Because they look at you and they ask, why aren't they living in the land that God gave them? Why aren't they experiencing the shalom that he meant for them? And they mock my name. God said to Israel, you were a priestly people. You were my holy vessels meant for my holy work. And you have made yourselves common. And by doing so, you have made my name common. And because of that, I have destroyed you. Friends, Daniel was not just pronouncing judgment here on Babylon. He was reliving the judgment of his own people. They too had been weighed and found wanting and they were divided among the nations. It's no wonder Daniel was so sober in presenting these words. Now we've been going a long time, so let me just ask in conclusion, where's the hope? Is there any hope here? Where's the hope? Is the hope in the revelation? Is the hope in the words? That the words will suddenly become more clear to us? Is the hope in our ability to hear? That, you know, we'll be able to clear the wax out of our ears, we'll let go of our persistent sin? Is our hope in ourselves? That we'll be able to fix this? No. Actually, our hope is in our sovereign God. Just like the professor said, but in our blasphemy, friends, we have made God so small and so insignificant that we have come to believe in reality that really He could never save sinners such as us, and therefore we better look elsewhere. But in reality, Yahweh really is the great King over all the earth. 
And he rules over the greatest of kingdoms, a kingdom that will never end. Our hope, friends, our only hope rests in him. Rests in him. Do you know what God convicts Belshazzar of? The sin that he actually nails on Belshazzar? Verse 23, you did not honor the God who holds your life in his hands. You did not give God glory. You made him small. He convicts Israel of that same sin in Ezekiel 36. He says, the name you have profaned, the name you have defiled, the name you have made small, I will fill with honor again. I will fill with honor again. God is our hope, not we ourselves. God says, I will bear the judgment that you are due myself. And then he goes on in verse, or chapter 36, and he says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we are that new people, not the old people. We are the new people with hearts of flesh and ears that are open with hearts that want to, desire to do the will of God and to claim His kingdom. We want to honor our God and to give Him glory. We want to live as His people. And the only way that we can do that is to ask His help. To ask for the help of our sovereign God. Friends, this text is not meant for us to look at and say, boy, those people are bad out there. It's meant for us to see that, boy, these people are bad in here. But we have a Savior who makes us new and helps us to live out that newness every day of our lives. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord our God, you are the God of your people. You are the God of all nations. You are the great King over all the earth. And yet, Lord, there's something in our hearts, each and every one of our hearts, that rebels, that refuses to give you the glory, that wants to glorify ourselves above you, and Lord, we cannot fix that. Only you can. And so we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us. You would take away our persistent sin and give us hearts of flesh that actually can hear you and desire to do your will. Fill us with the person of Jesus Christ who can take away our judgment and fill us with his Holy Spirit that we may live out your will in this world with gladness and joy 
and experience the shalom that you have always meant for your people. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.